talk about. For episode four of Night Rule, I was extremely pleased to get a chance to speak with the brilliant uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud. It was a fairly wide-ranging conversation on politics and psychology and life, and I hope you all enjoy it very much. Um, For such a special episode, I decided to bust out one of my all-time favorite tracks. Uh, For the intro, we will be listening to about 90 seconds of a song called Silent Screamer by one of the all-time greatest guitarists, Tetsuro Yamashita. And for the outro, we will be uh, listening to Koshi Maharu's rendition of C'est Si Bon. So without any further ado, uh, please nestle yourself in your favorite nestle area and put on your most comfortable socks and uh, enjoy the show. much more narrow in his interests than Marx. Marx would have been interested interested in Freud because he had wider interests, but Freud came after Marx, so he didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we can get started. So uh, hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for joining us uh, on today's episode of Night Rule. I'm extremely pleased today to be joined by Dr. Harriet Fraud. She's a mental health counselor and hypnotherapist based out of New York City. Um, she's also, I, I believe I've heard you called one of the founding mothers of uh, women's liberation in the 1970s. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yes, 1968. Yes. Yeah. Um, she's a brilliant mind and a, a brilliant commentator on a wide array of topics. So thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to me today, Harriet. Sure. I, the topics on which I comment is usually the interpenetration of political and economic and emotional lives people, personal lives. Absolutely, Um, which is a very underexplored uh, area, I think. I mean, I think any listener that has been to a therapist or psychologist of any type has probably, you know, talked to them about their work. I'm sure there's probably thousands of people in a a session right now talking about work in one form or another. But um, maybe briefly for the listeners, can you can you talk about how those discussions in the in the discipline as, as you practice the discipline, um, may differ from kind of the mainstream? You know, the mainstream of our field is apolitical and doesn't look at the social effects on people. What I subscribe to is more like what's called liberation therapy that sees a triangle. 
and want with the human being in the middle of that triangle. And one of the sides of the triangle is the economy and that person's position in it. There is the society, what society you're in. Another is what race and gender you're in and um, the cultural influences on you. And you're in the, your personal life is in the center, influenced by all these things. So if, you know, I have a joint podcast with Max Golding called It's Not Just in Your Head because he's in the mental health field as well. And we both are appalled that our field is so ignorant of the effects of the society. For example, the pandemic in the United States has killed over 350,000 Americans. And what effect does that have on a human being, knowing that, knowing that they're in the midst of an unchecked pandemic abandoned by their government? And they're an American would feel very different from, let's say, one of the, what is it, 1.2 billion in China. China, mm. country which is six times larger than ours, and it's lost 5,000 people. We've lost 350,000. What's going on? Why is our system and our government failing to protect us is a factor, even if it's an unconscious felt factor in Americans' lives. So that I see these things as relevant, just like uh, if are you in fearing eviction? That's relevant to your psychology. Are absolutely, you yeah, of course. I mean, when you when you contextualize these things um, with it, like it, and and kind of hopefully maybe empower people to kind of look at them in a little bit of a different way. Like, how do you think that 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 affects the course of their of their therapy or or whatnot? I think it really affects people because they don't feel to blame for everything. You know, that American idea, you can make it if you really try, as if everyone has an equal chance when we are the most inegalitarian nation in the developed world. In 1970, we were the most equal. Now we're the least of the 30 developed countries in the world, most of which are less developed than the United States. You're talking about places like Hungary, like Czechoslovakia, like Greece, like Panama, even, you know, we're really talking about a, a huge level of development and a huge level of inequality, which of course affects people, but the psychological world makes it seem like it's all in your head, that if you're not successful, it's because of you, not mm. of you and all the all other forces. Not that your personal choices don't have an effect. They do. But so does so do all these other things in which we're embedded. And that's how I'm different and I'm closer to liberation therapy, as is Max Golding, with whom I work. And there's a liberation collective therapy group in New York that works that way. But it's not the mainstream of our field. I mean, I can certainly understand kind of theoretically um, the appeal of a quote unquote apolitical approach, although, of course, you know, one can never step outside of politics or history um, completely at any point in one's life. But I, I just, it seems to me my concern 
with the mainstream approach in a way is is that it, it may only further kind of reify the um, the forces and the the influences in someone's life that you know they may learn to uh, bear or deal with better uh, with a therapist, but if they're if they're understood as something that is just normal and it's something everyone has to deal with and it's kind of generic, don't don't we run the risk of people just further kind of internalizing um, these uh, these struggles? Well, I don't. I think that what the problem is in the United States is that people think that if they didn't make it economically, they're to blame. Because there's an idea that was based on the opportunities available to white men between 1820 and the 1970s. Between 1820 and the 1970s, if you were white and male or born into the family of a white male, Every generation could do better than the past one. Even during the Great Depression, the those who had jobs had mm. their, their money worth more because mm. wages didn't go down as fast as prices. Mm. So they could afford more. And each generation could do better than the past one. That stopped in the 1970s when capitalists that in a world of fast jet travel, faxes, computers, multinational communications that were fast and easy, they could outsource millions of well-paid, usually earmarked as male in our chauvinist and as white in our racist society. They could outsource those to places where there were few ecological restrictions. There were masses of people willing to work for under $5 an hour. And those jobs that people had in the United States and those union wages that they accomplished could just be dismissed and they could abandon our country. Now, if you were a Swedish worker, because Sweden has huge socialist parties, you couldn't get away with that at all. You're not allowed to outsource jobs. And if you close your factory, you have to get a job for an equivalent wage for everyone who works there. So that couldn't have happened. But in an unregulated capitalism like ours, it was possible. And private decisions for profit, like to move to, let's say, China, which is the best paid in the... Um, in Asia, people get $3.50 an hour. You could take someone who were, who earned $35 an hour and pay them $3.50 and not have to worry about safe working conditions. So for their own profit, when they abandoned those jobs, they abandoned all the towns that were built around a factory where people worked and were expected to work and the subsidy they gave to local schools and businesses, it all evaporated. And the people whose lives were built on that economic reality and possibility were lost. Mm. That's what you get for making decisions only based on capitalist profit with huge social suffering involved. Absolutely. Um... I'm kind of I'm curious if if I'm kind of imagining a 
an individual kind of going through this process and I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the different steps involved and I'm wondering like, what is, what is a kind of informed stoicism that one could have after they've gone through this under the, this, this understanding of their own experience and, and, um, things that they're dealing with in their own life and everyone's life is individual, of course, although there's of course commonalities as well. Um, but if, if I'm informed about this greater context, and I'm kind of going down this path of uh, towards, you know, self-knowledge and understanding my own life and my place in society. Like what, are, are there any kind of underlying um, commonalities in, in the approach that that individual could take? Well, yes, they could see that they're not going to change their destiny all by themselves, that they had to join, they have to join with others in solidarity. They could also understand it's not just their personal responsibility, that they are embedded in networks of economic systems, of gender systems, of caste systems, of race systems, that they have to take into account. They don't have to give up and they don't have to stop trying, but they have to know their enemies. They have to know how to negotiate. And mm. otherwise, they're lost and it terribly depressed if it doesn't work. Because that's, that's a great well, way of putting it, how to negotiate. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to see yourself as part of these things. I remember I had a black client who was married at 12 to um, uh, an abusive husband in the South. And when I explained to her how her position was like that of a feudal serf who had to struggle to work for a share of the cleanliness, the order, the cooked food, the labor, the social connection, the sexual connection, the childcare that she produced for her husband who considered her, himself her feudal lord, she realized why she felt so insignificant. She burst out crying. Mm. Because yeah, that's she, a power, powerful moment, I'm sure. Uh, Yes, it is. She hadn't appreciated the forces that she was contending with. Mm -hmm. I remember I had a friend years and years ago in university who was a, a South Asian woman, and uh, she said the moment she first looked in the mirror and didn't uh, and realized she didn't want to be white anymore was like one of the most important moments in her life. And I think I think that's kind of similar. Um, uh, moment of clarity or similar realization in some ways, because like, if, you, if you're unaware of these things, of course, you're going to blame yourself, right? Yes. And you think I just am ugly rather than I am a beautiful South Asian woman. Mm. What kind mm. of standard of beauty? You know, those white standards are throughout our language and they're throughout the languages of other countries that are darker. I met a fair young woman. She mm. was fairest of them all. What? Not she was the darkest of them all, a dark star of beauty. Uh-uh. Mm. And people are inculcated into a standard that's based on a wealthy Caucasian women. Mm. Mm. It makes them feel personally inadequate if they don't have that kind of feature. And so your friend was claiming, I don't want to be what I'm not. And what I am is beautiful in its own right. Mm. Yeah, it's, it seemed to me. My impression was that it was one of it was one of the happier moments in her life, and I can certainly imagine why. Um, 
I think I think there's also, and it's kind of interesting in terms of when you talk about um, kind of a false standard being shown to everybody. I think one aspect of that that's really prevalent now is uh, in television and mass media. Um, all the characters are in these beautiful like mansion-esque houses, pretty much in everything you see. And right. I heard one person basically say that that was a form of like psychological abuse by by telling everyone if you're if you're not in this you know ten million dollar looking home, you're somehow like not normal or um, right. You know, so I mean, years ago you had shows like Roseanne maybe that showed like a little bit more of realistic um, situation, but that's getting. Uh, that's, well, they own been, their own house, you know. That's true. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just it's it's weird how um, those things can get so uh, systematized and so kind of um, they're like these. I mean, I don't want to say reified again, but they, they do get reified as kind of this skeleton underlying things, um, which is why I wanted to have someone such as yourself on to talk about it. So, um, yeah, well, what they do is they say this is the norm. And if you don't live in this splendor, there's something wrong with you. You're abnormal. You don't measure up because this is life. You're out of life. Which is just patently, patently ridiculous as soon as you start to examine it. Yeah, because the mass of Americans are nowhere near there. Look, one in 10 now with the pandemic, it just exaggerates it. One in 10 American families is goes hungry. 30%. About one in three is afraid of eviction, being pushed onto the street, not on their own, out of their own inferiority, as it turns out, but out of the bribery that landlords have been able to manage in their lobbies to keep rents up and not, and every time they raise the rent, another tier of people is on the street. Those who yeah. work at the bottom. And so that it's very important to fight the idea that if you're rich, then you're good. And if you're not rich, you're not good. Yeah, but it's, that's, a, that's a tale that's as old as time, a song as old as rhyme, isn't it? I mean, um, I mean, but it's also gotten, it's, we've reached really, there's, it's become intensified, I think. I mean, you, you kind of assume that, that that idea that if you're, if you're rich, you're good, and if you're poor, you're bad would it's kind of intense. fade away with time, but I think it's probably more intense than ever. It's more intense in our society because our society is more unequal than ever. And because, look, let's face it, after the capitalists went around the world to places like Bangladesh, where people work for a dollar an hour, or China, where they work for three fifty an hour, they amassed enormous wealth, which they brought back to the United States and bought our media. Mm. So they're not going to show average people struggling to survive. And we have, because we did have such a long period of 150 years in which we were exceptional. If you worked hard and were white and male, and the majority of Americans at that point were white, and you could do better than the previous generation. So we didn't have the huge, powerful socialist and communist movements that other nations had, because people realized we've got to join as a group or we won't get anything. It isn't my hard work. I'll have to join with others and force the people at the top to make concessions. 
we had that for a while with the socialist movements and the communist movements and CIO, labor union organizing of the 1930s and with the militancy that came in the 1930s. But it was crushed by the anti-communist movement of whom Joseph McCarthy is kind of the emblem where they threw all the communists and socialists out of the unions and they were sure. of the unions and where anyone who was pro-labor was suspect, which is one of the reasons our unions are so pathetic now, with the exception of leaders like Sarah Nelson, of course. But, yeah. you know, we... No, the McCarthy era is the height, and I'll just interject really quick, but really the height of absurdity. I think it's under studied um like people talk about mccarthy um and there's sort of this uh simplified version of of those events that i think gets told but i mean it was really it was really just ridiculous absurd kind of political theater there's actually a great recording you can get of bertolt brecht the the german playwright yeah um being pulled before the house of on, on american affairs committee and, and he's being and these idiots are literally reading lines from his plays the characters are speaking and then asking him to basically justify like acting as though these characters are, are just saying his his exact words as though you know literature or plays or drama just never didn't exist at all and uh, of course you know right afterwards after he did his uh, testimony he got in a taxi went to the airport flew back to germany never came back again you know so um yeah but mccarthy era didn't just happen because there was a bad guy named mccarthy it happened because during world war ii it happened in the 50s during World War II, which ended in 1946, Joseph Stalin was called Uncle Joe in the United States. They were our staunchest allies. The communists of, the, of Russia were our staunchest allies. And the Communist Party was huge. One out of four Americans had a relative that was active in the Communist Party. It was a, you know, it was just a factor, like the Green Party might be, or like Black Lives Matter might be, but it was a factor of political life that was accepted. Does one in four, and does, does, do one in four Americans have an, a relative who's, who's active in the Democratic Party right now, you think? I, have <laughs> I don't no, even know if they, I don't even think they do. I don't think they do, and it's hard to be active in that party because that power, these are not grassroots parties either than uh, the Republicans or that, the Yeah, that, that's a whole other can of worms. But they had to knock that out. The, you know, also the, the New Deal happened. And there were many socialists and communists like Francis Perkins, the labor secretary, in the New Deal. And the New Deal was a basic concession. FDR taxed the rich at 90 6.8% of their monies, their profits. And the reason they agreed was that people were so active in the streets and in the farms that he could say to his wealthy colleagues, because he was very wealthy and of an old family too, you better let me tax you or and they'll take over. And so they were taxed at that rate. And then after the war, they went on a hugely funded campaign to create an anti-communist presence, to smash the Communist Party, 
as a traitorous party, to smash Russia as not our staunchest ally against fascism, but as a heinous dictatorship, which in many ways it was, but still we supported a lot of other heinous dictatorships, not that one. And to make anyone who really believed in labor rights a kind of fellow traveler who was suspect and to take the two socialist parties that were very active and make them fellow travelers and fellow traitors. And it was really a concerted effort by the capitalist profiteers to stomp out socialist and communist influence. And they were quite successful at it, far too successful. Yeah, very successful. Um, do you ever, do you think it's possible for, for that? I mean, the, the, FDR era, the FDR era and then the New Deal era is very, very interesting when you look at the, the political coalitions and whatnot. Do you think, is it imaginable to see that kind of coalition building that's that broad and, and that includes that wide an array of, of kind of different ideological events on the left? Like yes. In a place like America? I think it is. The landscape has changed. You know, FDR said to the capitalists, you won't employ people? Fine, I will. He was responsible for hiring 11 million Americans. For the population size, that would be someone like, let's say, Biden, hiring 22 million Americans at good wages to do important things that had to be done, rebuild the infrastructure, create electric electric grids that, grids that were affordable in places that didn't have it, an internet, everywhere. Now rural Americans don't even have the internet, so they can't educate their kids when the schools are closed, even if in the re inferior way that remote education does. You, you, He made huge efforts. The Civilian Conservation Corps made national parks and local parks and conserved the land. The Workers' Progress Administration, WPA, hired hundreds of thousands of people. There was a whole artistic wing that put on plays and taught music and art and dance. I mean, there was probably like no part of the of the United States that if you, if you go to any small town, practically there, there's going to be something there. There's going to be some legacy from the New Deal even now, what, 75 years later? That's right. Yeah. And yeah. so that the people at the top who wanted to make profit with no impediments have been working steadily to withdraw that. Trump is its last manifestation who wants to take away Social Security, which was given even during the Depression. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably the... Um you know, probably one of the biggest pillars to come out of that, right? I mean, you had, at, at the time, I can't remember, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but like el uh, poverty among the elderly was just like rampant, right? Right. So you had social security, you had unemployment insurance, which people never had before. You hired millions of Americans at decent jobs to do things that had to be done to benefit everyone not just to benefit some capitalist who wants to make more money for himself. And of course we could do that. Jeffrey Bezos has $200 billion. If the government left him with a million and took away 199 uh, million out of his billion, 
there'd be a lot to go around. The United States has more billionaires than anyone else in the world. We also, of course, could bring that offshore money. I remember Romney bragging that he paid 13% in his taxes because he has offshore accounts. And that's, well, that's the thing. I think I think the first baby step, quote unquote, is how about we, we make sure everyone is actually paying the taxes they're supposed to be paying. That's and, right. You know, that's maybe let's raise the top rate. To, I, don't, I don't even know what it's at right now. I think it's at no more than 30 or 40 percent. Isn't it like 25? Didn't, didn't the Trump uh, tax bill bring it down to 25 or 27? And you can inherit 11 million dollars without taxes now when it used to be 500,000. So that slowly but surely there's been a redistribution up the chain so that the top 1% of the United States during this pandemic and since 1979 to, the, to now has had raises of 160%, while the middle and the bottom 90% have had their incomes frozen and buying less because inflation continued or lowered. So you have a huge redistribution up. And of course you could reverse it. You could tell people to bring their money back, and if they didn't, you'd go to the Cayman Islands and say, we're, we're taking over these accounts for the American Treasury. You don't like it. You're at war with the United States. I, I can imagine what decision they'd make. <laughs> um, I, wa I wanted to ask you one more question along the lines of, um, in terms of what people can actually do. I mean, it's, it's a pretty tough time out there in the job market, and I want, I want to touch on that in a little bit too, but... Um, I saw a kind of an interesting interview on Joe Rogan in the last couple of years. I think it was probably about two years ago where he had this British journalist on. I can't remember his name, but he had written a book just looking at a whole bunch of meta studies on um, just general contentment and happiness in people's lives. And uh, and he found some stuff that I mean, I th thought was pretty intuitive uh, when I heard it, but it isn't something people really talk about. And basically it just said that statistically, if you're working at, say, a co-op, your chances of being satisfied in general with your life are, are way, way higher than if you're working like any kind of corporate job where you're not an actual, you know, you don't have some uh, kind of skin in the game. You're not, you're not a participant in the the kind of planning of the business and, and you feel, feel like you, you know, to co-op, you have some control kind of over your life a little bit more. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you knew of, of kind of any studies that have been done out there speaking to the same, question because it's the kind of thing that no one really talks about again because culturally we have a very um kind of there's a there's a culture of kind of workaholism across the globe to varying extents i mean even in a place like look at south korea it's it's kind of off the charts but even in america this idea of just you know work 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 uh people aren't really considering the context of their work as much as they probably should be um that's right and don't necessarily want to do overwork. It's quite remarkable for an American like me to see that in the past year, the German metal workers who have a powerful union of hundreds of thousands of people won a 22-hour work week at the, at the same good pay for work-life balance because they have very powerful unions. And Germany is the most successful economy in Europe. But Americans don't know about these things. No. And so that no, Germans, German, uh, Americans do not understand the the hard fought victories of the, the, the of German collective bargaining. I mean, the the what they did during the after the 2008 downturn, I think it was called short work or something like that. It was it was employees getting to 
basically stay employed, but have reduced hours. And I think they did have to take a pay cut as well, but they were able to keep way more people in the workforce in Germany um, through that policy. All right now is the pandemic all over Europe, France, Germany, Switzerland, the Scandinavian countries, it's Italy. When people lose their jobs, the government will pay between 70 and 90% of their salary, but then in exchange, the employer has to commit to rehire them at the end of the pandemic so that they're not starving, so that they're not getting evicted. It's really different. They have very strong socialist, communist, anarchist parties. Well, or even just Keynesian. I mean, it's not even, you can just look at it as like basic, like pure Keynesianism, which is, you know, at least to my mind, wasn't a super radical thing. Although recently it seems like it's getting more and more so. It's like if you're, you know, if the whole economy is, uh, you know, at death's door, you have to put some money into it. You have to get it going again. I mean, we've, I thought I thought socially, culturally, we kind of learned that lesson, but um, oh, Well, certainly. the people at the top don't learn because their goal in life is more. More for me and my stockholders. And anything that interferes is to be fought. Keynesianism feels that the government has to come in to support private enterprise, to support capitalism, which creates crises. And we had a crisis in 2000, then in 2008, now in 2019 and 20. And uh, governments, it's understood in most European countries that the government has to intervene. American libertarians have this idea that capitalism will do great on its own. It it crashes every time. Yeah, the whole idea that things will go well, it's, it's, it seems like one of the most faith-based arguments I've ever heard. I always, lately I just, I'm wondering what the whole deal is with, like, I've never argued with a libertarian. I mean, I've watched Sam Cedar's show, so I feel like I have vicariously many times, but I just wonder, you know, the whole argument about roads, it's like, they're talking about, you know, the government shouldn't be building roads, but it's like, haven't governments been building roads for like tens of thousands of years? Isn't that like (laughs) something we all agreed on a long time ago as a worthwhile pursuit? Isn't it kind of obvious by now? (laughs) Well, the capital to build the road, like roads were built and railroads were built in Africa, which is one of the reasons it's still so underdeveloped. It was the road and the railroad was built from the plantation or factory that the capitalist owned to the harbor where it could be shipped out. But in terms of people connecting with other people, they weren't interested. You need some kind of force that looks after the common good. Well, that, that isn't, that isn't short sighted. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the, the factory owner building a road from their factory directly to the port. I mean, you know, economically you can understand transportation as just another component of production, right? Because your goods need to get to market. So having developed infrastructure so that everyone's goods can get to market easy, easier is like, you know, you, you need that if people are just going to be short-sighted and only look at their their own short-term interests, right? Which is fundamentally how I see the problem of, of that kind of stuff. Like That's the problem of unchecked capitalism. The idea is to make the most for you and your shareholders and to spend the least on your workers or anything else which is an ugly way of looking at people and an ugly way of doing things. And it doesn't work, it crashes. You can't have everybody plundering the mass of people working for them. It doesn't do well for the nation. 
And, you know, FDR did a lot of socialistic things. He was the most popular president we ever had. And when he died and the war was over, the capitalists worked very hard and in concert to remove the New Deal and any constraints on them. And they've been quite successful, which is why we've had so many recent recessions and the country is the most unequal country in the world. It's like the Pharaoh and the slaves in Egypt. Yeah, you can't fault their success. I mean, you know, Glass-Steagall getting repealed, you know, I think by Clinton in what, 1999, just before he left, it's it's kind of the the things came full circle in a lot of ways. And the fact that we're, I feel as though economically, I mean, you know, we have a, we have an economy right now where I, th- I believe the Fed is still just artificially pumping money into sure. the stock market in the first two seconds it opens every day, right? I think that's that's still the standard operating procedure. So, I mean, if anything, we're economically more fragile than we were in in a in, than we were in the 30s, right? That's right. And look, we can compare ourselves to China, which was a poor country. Their economy has grown by an average of 6% every year. The United States economy is down by 34%, I read. You know that you need some kind of planning. Now, China is not ideal. Certainly on civil liberties, it isn't. But in terms of a government taking responsibility for its citizens, it's more advanced than the United States. We're losing already because of this capitalistic idea. We need a regulated democratic socialism in order to do the, the Green New Deal or to have our lives back. It's, it's obvious, but Americans are not educated. You know, the Communist Manifesto has been a bestseller in Germany for about 10 years, at least. And most of the world learns Marxism in some form or another. Not us. I mean, why would you learn anything about uh, uh, writings that, you know, influence, you know, half of the governments and societies across the globe? I mean, it doesn't seem that important to me. But at the same time, you know. Right. That's right. Uh, I know we only have you for another few minutes here, so I'm going to go ahead and start the wind down procedure. Right. Um, and that, that entails me uh, cutting in some, some Star Trek sound effects uh, later on. I want to make sure I hit a few more questions with you before I have to let you go. So I think, I mean, I, I dug up this old quote from Seneca because I am a, a huge nerd, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's pretty commonly understood that the Stoics uh, were fairly heavily influential just in the whole realm of therapy and psychology. Um, and someone like Seneca the Younger or uh, Lucius Aeneas Seneca wrote a lot about topics like anger and envy. Um, and I wanted to just, as a professional, I'm curious for your thoughts on how um, insidious a force in, in one's life, or, you know, you could even extend it to socially. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about, again, because I'm an old theater nerd, um, thinking about Othello and the Green Eyed Monster and whatnot. Um, like what, to what, to what extent as, as a therapist is, is dealing with, you know, someone who's too envious or, or is comparing themselves to others too much? Like what, what have you learned about that process? One of the things that they say in the 12 step program is that people compare their inside to someone else's outside, their outside show. And what's important to recognize is that the external doesn't say anything about their interior life. 
and that your job is to take care of you and your own internal life and your own joy, which you really can't compare because you have no idea what the experience of the other person is, particularly people who lie. So it's a fool's errand. That is so interesting. I'm so glad I asked that question. That's a really brilliant insight. I never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Um, of course. Hmm. Uh, and then I did want to start a new segment on the show because I feel like there's a lot of uh, potential listeners out there who are either in need of general relationship advice or like some people, they might still be struggling to find a partner and are in need of courtship advice. At the same time, <laughs> I don't want to invite um, an expert on and, and, and ask them to give people easy answers because we don't want to peddle in easy answers. But um, if you if you had a if you had someone you were working with and they were struggling to say, you know, find dates, I mean, obviously, it's a really terrible time to be doing that right now. But I'm pretty sure there's going to be a flourishing sometime next year when things open up again. Um, people are there, contact people through the media and at least talk. It's a terribly lonely time because yeah. people are isolated in their homes and they don't have the casual social connections of either talking to people at work or talking to people online at the grocery store or interacting in the thousands of casual ways that keep us connected with other humans because we're supposed to see other humans and quite rightfully as potential contagion, dangerous. So it's quite changed. And what I would suggest is honesty because you don't want to try to attract someone on false premises because then they're not attracted to you. You're attracted to some story you told. And I often think of that part in the movie, The Big Short, excellent movie. Fantastic movie. The guy says he met his wife on the internet. He advertised that he was $100,000 in debt and had a glass eye. And his wife-to-be responded immediately, an honest person, I'd really like to meet you. Yeah, no, she said you're exactly what I'm looking for. That's one of the best lines in that movie. It is. Um, she, yeah, she, yeah. And then you know that the person likes you, not some facade you created that isn't you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was recently talking to a, a friend, a, new, a kind of new friend that I'd met online who was struggling a little bit with this question. And they had had this experience, you know, they'd never had a girlfriend um, and they'd had this experience where they... Um, kind of almost uh, started something with, with this woman, um, but she had actually had a boyfriend at the time and there was this, they were friends and there was this tension and then something almost happened, but it didn't. And and he kind of, my, my worry was I was hearing this and I thought to myself, well, you know, this is a situation where everyone's kind of gotten out. So there's nothing at stake here, you know? Mm-hmm. And I worry about, um, people in that situation giving themselves easy outs. I think we're in kind of a, a an age of easy outs. Um, like to, to what extent do you think kind of making sure you're, you're going into a situation that's, uh, that's authentic and, and where you don't kind of have um, a back door to walk out of if you want it. How, how important is that you think? Well, everyone has a front door to walk out by saying, no, I don't want this. If they have enough of a sense of self, they don't have to sneak out the back. Mm. But I think 
What's most important is to have honest conversations. And if you put yourself out there honestly, you'll be quite remarkable in this lying culture where you're supposed to present yourself like an ad or a brand that's deceptive. Mm. That's so, true. That's a good point. Um, so it's a fantastic. You know, I think about how when I was very young, I guess I was in my mid-20s, and my car had been stolen, and I needed a ride downtown. And someone came out of the office where I'd been, and I said, would you give me a ride downtown? And he was a young man, and we got in the car. I said, you know, it's really sick. Just because you're a man and I'm a woman, I'm starting to get afraid that you'll put some moves on me and forget that I'm a person. And he said, oh, my God, I was just worrying that I'm supposed to put a move on you. <laughs> it feels awful. We had a very nice talk. And an immediate bond from telling the truth. The truth is a big binder between people. And people who find it a turn off to hear the truth would not be worth interacting with. Fantastic. Fantastic. Change. Um, where can, uh, before we let you go, I wanted to uh, make sure people knew where they could uh, find more of your work. I know, I know you're a regular on the David Feldman show, which uh, I've, I've really always really loved your spots on there. And then you have two podcasts, right? Yes, I have two podcasts, one with Max Golding, It's Not Just in Your Head, which is mainly psychological issues, and the other is with Democracy at Work, called Capitalism Hits Home, the way capitalism affects our personal lives, and I do that with Juliana Forlano, who also mm -hmm. is on TV. And then I am on David Feldman on Monday nights at 8, and various other shows at other times. I have a website, Harriet, H-A-R-R-I-E-1-T-F-R-A-A-D.com, HarrietFraud.com, where all my work is. And so those are all places to find me. Fantastic. And I, I definitely would recommend to everyone to, uh, to do so. Um, because Harriet's a very, very insightful person. And uh, I think I think that's very evident from this conversation as well. Um, you're a real hero for for taking the time to uh, come and talk to a total stranger. And uh, I think I think the audience is really going to enjoy it. I certainly did. Well, um, I was glad to participate. Thank you. <laughs>